Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap events and issues pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Cooper Banks. The bloody conflict in Ukraine and Vladimir Putin's invading Russian army pounding Ukrainian cities and civilians with punishing long-distance attacks. But the Ukrainian military and civilian fighters alike continue to push back. Ukrainian forces counterattacking, retaking ground around the capital city of Kyiv. We wanted to sit down for another conversation with associate professor and Russia expert at Bradley University, Angela Weck. I was joined with WNBD's Craig Collins as we got the update. We have reached our one-month um, uh, date, been one month since Russia invaded the sovereign state of Ukraine. Um, the resistance that Russia is facing, I believe, is unexpected for the Russians. They were under the impression that the Ukrainians wished to rejoin Russia willingly. Um, I'm not sure why they thought they needed to invade if that was actually what they believed. But nonetheless, they invaded, and the Ukrainians, whether they were pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, are all united in not wishing to be conquered in order to be yeah. reclaimed. You know, I'd actually, I'd actually like to touch on that for just a quick second, and then I'm sure Cooper will have some questions for you, too. Uh, some of the reporting we've got said that military leaders in Ukraine, uh, excuse me, in Russia, advised Putin not to invade Ukraine because it would make the two countries mortal enemies. It would weaken Russia's ability to obviously uh, work with a lot, of, a lot of the countries in the West. Uh, but even more so than that, they believed the fight would be more significant uh, than Putin seemed to believe. Uh, was that thought that Ukraine wanted to be a part of Russia Putin's or many in Russia? It is primarily Putin's, but I think there are the leaders of the military, especially the defense minister Shoigu, share that view that Ukrainians wished to be part of of Russia. Um, so it depends on who you're asking. Gotcha. I think the military leaders closer to the guys in the trenches understood something very different um, in the fact that even though Russia had already supported rebels to take over parts of Luhansk and Donetsk in the far east of Ukraine, they were not successful in simply keeping it and holding it. They, they constantly had to fight to hold on to it. So um, I think the, the leaders closer to the front understood that this was not going to be an easy conquest. But that's not who Putin was listening to. Plenty of curiosity about who Putin was listening to and dovetailing on that, Angela. I was going to ask, how surprised would you surmise Putin is right now with the way this is going? I think he's deeply disappointed in the way things are going. Um, one of his closest inner circle, Anatoly Chubais, has fled the country. He is now in Turkey. Um, and I think there are others who are going to be leaving. I think the sanctions are having a dramatic impact on some of those people who have significant wealth that is now tied up by sanctions. Um, and, and they're also seeing the reality. Some people do see the truth of what's happening in Ukraine, and they're horrified by what Russia is doing. Yeah, let me they, ask you this, actually, in, in uh, touching on that, because more sanctions were announced today, and they are targeting individuals and oligarchs and, and people that are probably within Putin's inner circle uh, more than anything else. And I think, as you just stated, that is likely to, or at least the intent is probably to weaken Putin. 
Uh, but if you don't mind me shifting, to, and these are a couple things I've heard, you can just tell me if you think they're accurate or not. The true intent now for Putin and for Russia is to just decimate Ukraine. Uh, that may be Putin's goal, but I don't know that that's the Russian military's goal or the overall, the overarching Russian goal. Um, Putin wanted to demonstrate that NATO had to roll back its its claims or its alliances in Central and Eastern Europe. Nothing has strengthened NATO alliances more than his invasion of Ukraine. That would raise, I, I want to interrupt really quickly about, because it's a good place to ask this question. How much credence might there be to the argument that NATO indeed may have advanced eastward into old Soviet territory unwisely over the years? Well, unwisely or not, every single sovereign state in the world has the right to make decisions about its own security and, and its own economy. Mm-hmm. So whether or not they join NATO, they join NATO. NATO didn't expand and take over them like Russia's trying to take over Ukraine. Mm-hmm. They asked to join the alliance, and when they met the requirements to be in it, they were admitted. But it's not an expansion of NATO like NATO took over yeah. those territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can actually uh, touch on that for a second because, as you said, uh, the requirements to join NATO are unique. Uh, Ukraine wanted to be a part of NATO, but there were countries like Germany uh, that didn't want to see that happen or at least were hesitant to see that happen. Uh, and you need a unanimous vote by NATO countries to have another country enter into that alliance. Uh, do you think maybe on that same sort of line of questioning that that was a mistake, that the countries that opposed the ad of Ukraine because of its proximity to Russia uh, are now in some way, shape, or form regretting that because of the invasion itself? I think the, I think Ukraine was only very serious about joining NATO after Russia seized Crimea. And, and then the rebels took over Donetsk and Luhansk. At that point in 2014, Ukraine was no longer eligible to join NATO. And so I don't think it's a matter of um, Germany nixing them or, or vetoing their admission, um, they're not eligible. If their borders are not secure and recognized by the world, they're not eligible to be part of NATO. Neither is Moldova, neither is Georgia, neither are any of the other countries whose borders, either by Russia or somebody else, um, are not secure. Uh, I would ask, bringing it kind of all the way back around to Putin and the broader view of the conflict that unfolds now in front of us is a reminder, because I've heard you say it so many times, Angela, that idea of, and the question being, how does Putin see all of this, and how determined is he to get what he wants? I I think he's been very clear on how he sees it. If you look back to the speech he made right before the invasion, where he justifies his um, mental reasoning that Ukraine is not really a separate country, it's really part of Russia, has historically been part of Russia, continues to be part of Russia. It's an artificial construct that was first set up by Lenin and then by Khrushchev after World War II, um, but artificial and therefore it should be back in the fold, you know, welcome back into the family. Um, He was very clear about that. Um, There are all kinds of holes in that reasoning, but in his mind, that's what he sees. Mm -hmm. And they do share a lot of common ethnic, religious, 
um, linguistic even connections. But Ukraine is Ukraine. And at the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, all 15 former republics of the Soviet Union were declared sovereign states. So whether or not Putin wants to rewrite history now, even he recognized the borders of Ukraine in 2006. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, he, he's making his own history. Um, and I think he believes that the West would stand aside and let him do it. And I think more importantly, he believed that Ukrainians would welcome him with parade. The last question I would have on this line, and it's the last question I'll have for you today, Angela, is a lot of conversation about people's read on Putin's current true state of mind. Is he still calculating or has something spun off with him in your read? You know, I'd I'd love to say he's gone crazy. But I don't think he's the only one who shares these views. There are a lot of people in Russia, and for that matter, before the invasion, there were a lot of people in Ukraine who really enjoyed a close relationship between neighbors. But that's important to remember, between neighbors. You know, Russian people vacationed in Ukraine along the Black Sea. Ukrainian people travel widely throughout you know, Moscow, St. Petersburg, whatever. Mm. Um, it, you know, even though average Russians may enjoy a good relationship. I don't think anybody expected the military to take over Ukraine so violently. So that's where people comment about maybe he's lost his mind or something. I don't think that's the case. I think he has settled into his own thoughts of this, and he has surrounded himself with people who are telling him he's correct. Mm. And so um, he's, he's He's drinking his own Kool-Aid. Peace talks ongoing in Europe. The West committed to keep Ukraine in the fight. We'll stay on the farm with our next conversation, and it's all about daylight saving time. Saving sunlight, certainly something that's at least of interest to those who depend on it for the production that feeds many Americans and farmers' own families. I wanted to dive deep on this subject with someone who knows far more than I. And RFD Radio Network Bloomington's Delos Yankee was glad to help. Okay, so uh, Delos, I wanted to just ask you about daylight saving time. I guess I wanted to learn from you about why it stayed uh, in effect for as long as it did and why it maybe was as important as it was to ag business. Can we start there? I'm really intrigued by the notion of daylight saving time because I think of it as a kid who grew up with livestock, for example, and we milk cows also. And you have some times of the year where it stays dark all the way that through that morning milking mm-hmm. or it stays dark all the way through chores. And that would be a result of daylight savings time, pushing the sunrise back an hour. Mm-hmm. So I would think, Thinking of it as a livestock farmer, I think I would like to do as much of that with some sunlight as possible. But there are also fewer and fewer of us, or there are fewer and fewer that would have livestock, especially enough to necessitate all those chores. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's not as uh, pressing as it once was. But uh, it is fascinating to see the impacts of some of those changes. You know, when when you have average sunrise at 617 on the 12th 
at 7.15 on the 13th, it, it really does change the day a little bit. And that was always something that when you have a whole list of a long list, I mean, one hour in the day, time is money, they say. Um, and that means for both crop and livestock farmers too, right? Yeah, and one thing you're seeing, especially in the case of soybeans, soybeans need as much sunlight as possible. And so you're seeing more of a shift to soybeans being planted earlier in the year and maybe even before corn, which would have never been done before. Mm. But it has been in recent years to give the soybeans as many opportunities as they can to get sunlight as the daylight hours get longer. So going up to the June 20, June 21st time frame, trying to take advantage of as much sunlight as possible, hopefully then to provide more productivity, more yield uh, to soybean acres. That's one thing where you're really seeing the importance of, of sunlight in agriculture. I think it's really interesting how can you tell us it is that maybe ag business has already made adjustments to deal with a permanent changeover to daylight saving time? Is there something, how much have they adjusted already to this likely change, you know, to this change? What can you tell us about that? Oh, I wonder. I, here's one thing that I do remember. I was living in Indiana in 2000. And daylight savings shifted during the final four. And now it shifts during the Big Ten tournament, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. So now you have eight months out of it. It's not six. You get eight months of of the time. Mm -hmm. So that, to me, is really interesting of, well, just how long does it need to be? Mm -hmm. Uh, I will say the American Farm Bureau Federation does not have a stance on daylight savings. Interesting. Very interesting. Now, what I would ask is, what is the reaction then fairly muted as it relates to this change being put into place? I think so. I think it's, you know, the biggest thing is making sure you get to church the right time on Sunday. Hmm. Uh, once you get past that, you know, you just go about your business. Um, yeah. Daylight changes, but... Uh, we continue the work of growing the food and cultivating the food. Yeah, that is sometimes a daily and certainly an, an annual part of agriculture, not just having plan A, but also B, C, D, and E, and thinking about, okay, we had two, you know, we had a huge rain event, so you have to go fix fence, for example. You just go and do it and take care of business, mm-hmm. or you know, if, it, if that impacts uh, farm ground at all, you know, whether that's corn, soybeans, wheat, or whatever, you know, what do we do in response to what happened? And that could be something that happens once a week, or that could be something that happens once every five years. But but the whole idea of just keep moving forward and doing what you can to produce a crop or to, to raise that livestock, uh, it may from it may look the same from a distant perspective, but but it is something that regularly goes through changes and adapts and has different patterns to it. It, it is a, it's a very, uh, sometimes it's a fast-changing business, sometimes it's not, but it is certainly in some sort of change one way or another. 
You know, another thing that I'm really fascinated and curious about would be is how how helpful or maybe not, but I would presume helpful the timing of the passage of this change in the daylight saving time and the impact on planning for planting and harvesting, you know, for the next uh, several seasons down the line. Is it helpful at all that it gets passed now or is a change like that just kind of, again, something that could always be rolled with? It's interesting. I feel like daylight savings time is that signal of it's almost go time. Mm-hmm. So if you didn't have it, you know, what what would there be? What would nature give you to give you that feel of, of it's almost go time? Mm-hmm. Maybe you would still use things such as Easter or other parts of the calendar. Mm-hmm. When you know, like, Easter this year is in mid-April, you think, well, it's probably going to be a late spring. And so those are now more than a month apart from each other this year. So maybe that's a little bit different. But, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I wonder what would be that sort of signal to say, hey, it's it's about, especially for an area that relies on corn and soybean production, so crops that are planted in the springtime as they are. Yeah. Daylight savings is almost like that gun going off. Time to plant, you know, or. Yeah, it's almost like the starter's pistol. Interesting. And so, I, I, yeah, I wonder how that would change if you didn't have that spring forward. That date part set. Of the, part yeah. Of the season. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, I suppose we'll see about that. Uh, yeah. Um, and, 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 and how much, I mean, honestly, is there, is there a date or a week? around this entry into spring that fills that void in an exacting enough way for those really, you know, scrupulous folks who want to make the most out of their land uh, at the right time all the way down to the very day? Is there anything to consider there at all? I don't think so. I, I think the closest you could get to that is a statement of when the ground is fit it's time to go Mm -hmm. and that may be different each year you know if you're getting snow in early april you would say no and then sometimes it's 75 degrees in early april so so it would be different each year but but i think there is a a general time each year not necessarily the same time but but there is i think you know, from a regional standpoint, farmers would feel that that the ground is now fit. So let's, if the weather allows, let's let's go do it. Let's go, yeah, yeah. But that would not necessarily be a. Oh, it's the third Sunday in March, or it wouldn't be. I, I think of the line in Hoosiers when uh, when the lady said the almanac says it's time to start planting. I yeah. don't think that exists anymore. But uh, but there is a. I think farmers would feel a time each year where they know that the ground is fit. Let's go. The power of the human mind and the impact of the events surrounding it. When the world goes a little nuts, it can drive us a little nuts, too. 
We learned all about it from Dr. Eric Braun, assistant professor at Bradley University, who joined WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show earlier this week. Is the word dysregulation, is that the word I'm looking at, of, yeah. of our, our brains? And, and so we've set it up all morning with you in that uh, new, telling people that you're coming. Uh, our brains are fr- uh, frayed. Our, if the wires in our, uh, if our brain were wires, we're frayed a little bit because we've got all this stressor. We have all these stressors. We have COVID and and isolation and Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, looming wars and all those kind of things. What does dysregulation of our brain mean? So, dysregulation of the brain. Um, uh, think of it as uh, almost like if you're getting used to a certain way of living. Um, whether that be even from like a traumatic upbringing, for example, um, or, uh, you know, a world event like this one or like 9-11, Columbine, uh, all those types of horrible things, your brain, you, you, you form these, uh, what they're calling neural pathways. Yeah, I've heard of that. And, and what those are is it's kind of the, the way that you feel and think and behave, your brain kind of and this isn't physically true, but you can kind of think of it this way. Your brain kind of forms these grooves. You get used to the the way those ways of thinking. Could, could you say the word normalcy? Whatever your normal is, what mine is yours is, is is yours is different than mine. But I'm used to getting up every day and going to this job and doing this thing, and and then on the weekends I do these kind of things. And while there may be variances in there, it's kind of uh, the same. It's kind of the same, right? Sure. Like, and so that's why um, good habits and bad habits, however you define good and bad, sure. Um, that those contribute to that, right? So, yeah, yeah. if you get up, get up every morning and exercise, or or meditate, or do uh, any number of other uh, healthy ways of coping, right? Your brain is going to uh, get used to that and respond to that eventually. Um, if you uh, if you're like me sometimes and you play too much video games, <laughs> you're gonna your your brain's gonna used to get used to that too, right? And sure. so um, if you if you take that to uh, these types of world events and looking at the news and uh, worrying about it all the time, and um, you know some people like to purposely look at things they disagree with. Um, and there's almost a, 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 an addictive quality to that. I was going to ask that. Your brain yeah. gets used to that, too. Is that, a, is that under the definition of addiction? Or like, if every day I get up to try to find out who I'm mad at, mm-hmm. it seems addicting to me. Yeah, so uh, the, I don't think there's not uh, something in it specifically, officially, you know, on the okay. DSM-5. Right. But there's, it, it certainly behaves the same way as, as addiction. It's just you don't... Ha- have as much of that uh, physiological stuff. That device right there in front of you is the addiction. They they did studies where they put people in a room with nothing, yeah. and after three minutes they get started jonesing. Yeah, and yeah. and people don't are growing up now without the ability to turn off and go sit on the back porch and watch a tree wave in the and in, in, you know in, in the wind, and this. Inability to disconnect and be quiet is, is probably adding to all of this, right? Certainly, yeah. And uh, you know, with with technology and stuff, there there are other certain things too that that contribute to that as well. Um, uh, for instance, if you forgot the name of 
an actor uh, back in the day, yeah. and you're just talking with your friends, you got to go, oh, what was the name of that person? Mm-hmm. I can't think of that. And then you and your buddies talk about it, and then eventually maybe you get to the answer. With the phone, you instantly get it, and there may be something lost in that, right? Um, because you're not, in a certain way, your brain's not being challenged that way. Okay, now, this is the greatest news I've ever heard, Danny. Yeah. Because it's it's like uh, Dr. Braun has listened to the Greg and Dan show for the last 17 years. Yeah. <laughs> that happens to us almost every day, where, where one of us will go, who's that guy with you the thing? You know the guy, yeah. the guy with <laughs> the, the earring, guy with and the, the hat. Yeah. And, and you're right, we live in this Google-centric world uh, and so the fact that we can access it right away mm-hmm. actually might be damaging or at least not be a positive thing to helping work the muscle, if I can yeah. say it that way, of the brain, right? Yeah, in a way it, it limits your ability to be bored. And you, you, in a way being bored is good because it, it limits you, you know, you, it forces you to have imagination. And, and you know. my favorite thing as a kid, looking back on my summers, was being bored with nothing mm-hmm. to do yeah. for hours trying to come up with stuff. And, and another thing that might add all of this is for some reason parents look at the kids in the summer going, well, they just can't sit around all summer, so they fill up their schedules with travel teams yeah. and all this and that, and that probably adds to all of it too. Yeah, and that, and, and for uh, you know kids like me who are introverts, I mean, I'm not a kid anymore, I'm 36, but um, yeah. <laughs> you know when I was a kid and still now I was an introvert and am an introvert, and when you fill your schedule with lots of stuff, you know, you never have that winding down time. You never have that rest. You this know? is different. Uh, and t- tell me how it's different than mental health issues. Although this feels like it, it's a mm-hmm. little different, right? This is not I'm dealing with a mental illness or a mental health challenge. I have a brain mm-hmm. that n- is, is just off its path that will lead me in a positive way. And, and the stresses of the world, COVID and Ukraine and all the other big things, can take me down that path. So, so what do we do about that? Yeah, so um, there are a number of approaches. Um, and and uh, so uh, people often ask me, and I'm, I'm going to get to the answer in kind of a roundabout way. But, That's okay. Um, so people often ask me, what's the difference between counseling and psychology? And... Um, psychology comes from a medical model. In, in other words, um, they assume there's there's something wrong. Counseling doesn't necessarily assume there's something wrong, and we need both fields. I'm not I'm not uh, mm-hmm. denigrating psychology in any way, um, but uh, counseling comes from a wellness perspective, meaning we're all growing. They're, they're, we all have something in our lives we'd like to see different, and uh, so this is more of a wellness uh, issue, and. In an indirect way, it's a mental health issue. It's just we're not dealing with a disorder. I understand. And so um, the, the, way to, the way to do that, the way I approach it personally is um, I uh, exercise regularly. And um, one, of the, one of the best things I've done for my personal wellness and mental health has been meditation. Uh, uh, Probably five times a week, and sometimes I miss that stuff. Quiet all the yeah. noise, right? And what that does is it helps the regulation, because if you're if you're doing it in uh, kind of in the mindfulness style of meditation, which is counting your breaths. If I breathe in, that's one. I breathe out, that's two. And then when I get to ten, I start over, um, and and I focus on that. And then when I say 
when, when I notice, oh, my mind's wandering, let's come back to the breathing. And maybe I, um, we, we do this thing called noting, N-O-T-I-N-G. Um, I note what the feeling was or what the thought was that got me off of that. Was it an unpleasant feeling or was it a pleasant feeling? And was it anxiety? Was it anger? Was it whatever it was? And I come back. And what that does is that helps those neuropathways that I, was, that I was talking about earlier. And it gets your brain more used to going, okay, everything's cool. I'm, I'm back on track. And you kind of get used to those, uh, what we consider to be unpleasant emotions. And you get to be more okay with those emotions. It reminds me a lot of, well, uh, Eckhart Tolle wrote The Power of Now. Um, but it reminds me a lot of, of, of Zen Buddhism in the sense mm -hmm. that it's only the present. All these things are distractions. The only thing you control is now, so be in the now. Sure, yeah. And certainly there's something to be said for reflecting on the past. Um, you know, we can learn from the past and so forth. But being in the present is a very healthy way to be. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea of training your brain to get back to not avoiding these unpleasant emotions, but learning to ride them out and learning to say, okay, this is part of the human experience. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going with it. It's going to end at some point. It could have been worse. Always the message after a high-rise fire. And at the Twin Towers in downtown Peoria last week, things were no different. I learned more from Peoria Fire Battalion Chief Michael Hughes, who was there that day. First of all, I think that there's um, a... A, 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 a slow clap, a, a nice um, congrats and well job well done on what was a pretty uh, dicey high-rise fire in downtown Peoria. Uh, I guess I would just give you the chance to, uh, to uh, talk about your team there and how they did. Well, first off, I would, I would like to thank all the men and women on the fire on the Peoria Fire Department that did an outstanding job in some uh, um, very trying circumstances. But I would also like to take a minute to thank the, uh, um, there's many, there was many other agencies that came together. Uh, this Peoria Police Department, I would like to give a big thank you to uh, for closing down Jefferson Street. Uh, they were also able to uh, help uh, help shelter in place and get anybody out on the floors below the fire that weren't affected. Uh, PIPCO that was uh, able to come and start working on the uh, sprinkler system uh, pretty much immediately. They started that night. Uh, I don't, um, I didn't get permission to use their names, but I would like to thank uh, the president of the condo association and his wife, uh, just, uh, just general, information and knowledge that he had of everybody that was in there uh, along with uh, the dispatchers they were phenomenal um, talking to them back and forth while we were while we were on scene and there's probably uh, Cameron uh, electric and gas that were there that were phenomenal also there was just uh, so many agencies that helped out that uh, made this go a lot smoother than what it could what it could have been so I always love to try and place myself and, and the good folks who are listening here to into the role as best I can. Is when you're rolling to something like 
a fire at the Twin Towers, a big high rise. You know, what thoughts are going through your head and what feelings are you kind of dealing with uh, as you're making your way to the scene? Well, my my first first thoughts on this one was hopefully this is nothing. <laughs> that it's that it's something that we could take care of pretty quick. It's just an alarm or it's it was somebody somebody smoking in an apartment or they caught a trash can on fire, something of a smaller magnitude that we wouldn't have to that we wouldn't have to deploy all all of our units. But mm-hmm. unfortunately on this one it was it was bigger. But your mind starts racing, and, and it's like, okay, how many people do I have in there? Do, where's the fire located? Um, how how many people are we going to have to evacuate? Uh, are we going to have to uh, are we going to have to possibly rescue X amount of people? The, you know, That's the one thing I, I I love that you say that because the thing I think of, and I would kind of go back again to the original start of of. When you're in this situation and when it's a high rise fire and you're like, okay, we like, is that, you know, initially you're kind of like, okay, we got, we maybe, we maybe have a problem here. Uh, yeah, it's, it was probably about 10 or eh, probably about five, 10 minutes into the call when I, uh, into this incident, when we were notified, it's like, this is. This could be a this could be a working fire. Yeah. Um, and my main concern is my main concern is the men and women. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm 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 on a radio and I'm in command, but I'm not in there actually actually doing it. And right. and I'm trying to get these guys, direct these guys, try to get them all the resources they need to to mitigate this situation. Yeah. And then I walked through the lobby out the backside, and I uh, notified the interior crews that we it's like we have smoke coming from the upper from the upper levels of the east tower, and it's like we we have a situation. We got a situation here. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. And it's probably and it's we're probably going to be here for a while. And then it wasn't long after that the crews were. Did a search, which was negative, but they came back and reported they had a working fire, yep. and uh, they had uh, they had hooked the hoses up to the standpipe, and they uh, had water on the fire, which is which is another like I, I said earlier, it's a it's a uh, sigh of relief. It's like okay, it's uh, uh, they're getting to the fire, and every it sounds like everybody's out. They're doing a search, and um, I was also going to say. Is there, was there the kind of moment where, and how would you identify it, where you know, okay, we're not in the middle of a serious crisis right now. Okay, we're, you know, it's going to be all right. Like, when when does that moment happen on a thing like what happened Sunday? To to me, that that took place because we initially – uh, this initially came in as a fire alarm, possibly uh, a problem on the 26th floor showing on the fire panel with the sprinkler s- system. And then we were I started getting reports that there was a possible fire on the 26th floor. And then I had met with, with the resident, and the resident relayed to me that her husband was still in the 
was still in the affected unit, and so the levels went way up then. Oh, yeah. And for me on this call, it was when we accounted for the second occupant of the condominium and when the crews called and relayed to me that the fire was out. And it's like, okay. And they, they were ready for ventilation. They were ready to, for, us, to, for, the, for us to take the fan up and start ventilating. And then it's, it's like a, the first 10, 15, 20 minutes of the call, it's like you get a collective sigh of relief and it's, it's just like, whew, it's, it's like I could take a breath. Hey, they, I guess it's worth asking, you know, as, as you'd mentioned but before, how clutch is that sprinkler system? In th- in this case, it was uh, it was very uh, it, uh, it was very very helpful. It yeah. kept the it did not put the it did not completely put the fire out, but it kept the fire in check. Yeah, and fire doubles doubles in size within minutes, and it took it took our firefighters. Uh, I mean, it was a good ten minutes. 10 minutes or more before we were in place and we mm-hmm. had enough people up there on scene with the equipment to go attack the fire. So it could have been, I mean, this could have been seriously worse. I mean, we could have had the whole floor on, on fire. So mm-hmm. yeah. that's, uh, so it was, it was very helpful and it's, uh, and um, so any, I mean, when people, uh, it kind of saddens me when there's people saying, "Well, the the sprinkler system did more damage than uh, than the fire did." Yeah, and but I also tell them also, I said, "Well, you don't like on that. You don't know. I mean, you can always replace sure uh, belongings and property. You can't replace a lost loved one or, or person that's in that fire." And you don't know you don't know that part of the equation if that sprinkler system that was wasn't operating how bad the fire would have been or or if there was people up there that couldn't have got out that that sprinkler system probably helped contain that fire and save save x amount of people that does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For Instant News 24-7, follow us at 1470 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.